Well, good morning. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm one of four elders here at Covenant Hope Church. I'm also the senior pastor here and have uh, had the privilege of preaching through the book of Philippians uh, most of the summer so far, and we are nearing the end. I wonder if you were with good friends, perhaps maybe friends that were a little bit younger than you, some friends perhaps that looked up to you as a mentor, uh, a guide in life, and you were about to depart from them and perhaps never ever see them again. That, was, that would be a, a likelihood in this situation. What would you say to them? What kinds of things would you say to them? Maybe if you knew them well, you might point out a particular thing in their lives that you wanted them to work on. You would urge them perhaps to depend on the Lord for all the rest of their days. And you might encourage them to live wholeheartedly for the Lord until he returns. Well, our passage this morning is essentially just that very kind of message from the Apostle Paul, no less, to the Philippians. Now, we're not quite at the very end of the book of Philippians. Uh, we have 10 more verses to go, and then the week after that, so two weeks from now, I'll also preach a sermon on the entire book of Philippians. But these verses this morning really are the last exhortations or encouragements from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Uh, verses 10 through 20, which we'll read about next week, are actually kind of end notes, uh, a thank you from Paul to the Philippians for the gifts that they have given him. And they're nonetheless very, very important. But these are his summary statements in some ways that we're reading this morning. And they're particularly rich, so we'd better dive into them right away. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me as I read. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, <clears throat> you also, true companion, help these women who have, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord God, will you touch each person's heart and mind with your word this morning? Will you cause the words of yours in this scripture to cut hearts 
in order to heal. Cause these words to rebuke in order to reconcile. Cause these words to comfort those who are discouraged and anxious and without hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, really the summary of all these verses, Paul states in that very first verse, 1 of chapter 4. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. That's really the summary for all these verses. And as we work down through them from verses 2 through 9, we'll break it up into three parts. Here's the outline if you want to write it down. It'll help you follow it through. The first is resolve your conflicts together. That's verses 2 through 3. Resolve your conflicts together. The second batch of verses there, 4 through 7, is pray joyfully about everything. Pray joyfully about everything. And verses 8 and 9 can be titled, Focus on Godly Thoughts and Deeds. So resolve your conflicts together, pray joyfully about everything, and focus on godly thoughts and deeds. Really, this describes standing firm in the Lord. Well, we're nearing the end of this letter from Paul, as I mentioned earlier, and we're going to hear throughout these verses many of the themes of the letter echoed in these final exhortations. In fact, uh, there's hardly a verse that we'll read in 1 through 9 that we can't link back to something that Paul has already said to the Philippians. He's just reminded them in the verses immediately prior to this of his and their ultimate hope in the return of Christ having our bodies transformed to be glorious like Christ, where there be no sin, no desire to sin. And he's going to give them this final overarching command. But first, first he addresses the Philippians with terms of an endearment and affection. It's, it's as if Paul was uh, standing before them and he wanted to square up to them and put his hands on their shoulders and look straight in their eyes with a warm and loving smile. And he would say to them, my brothers. That's exactly what he says first, my brothers. Of course, when he says my brothers, they all would have understood that he intended both brothers and sisters, as we'll see in the verses next to that, because he directly addresses Euodia and Syntyche to women in the church in Philippi. And he first says to them, my brothers whom I love and long for. So Paul told them directly at the beginning of this letter, the entire letter, that he has the affection of Jesus Christ for them. He loves the Philippians deeply, and he's not afraid to tell them. And then Paul's thoughts of Christ's return, of course, he's just been mentioning Christ's return in the verses immediately uh, prior to this. They're not far from his mind. And so he refers to the, the Philippians as well as his joy and crown. That's looking forward. It's an eschatological view of who the Philippians are in his life. They will be his joy and crown as well when they all stand together before Christ at his return. Paul knows that when he's resurrected, it won't just be Christ alone that he shares great joy with. It will be all of the believers that he shepherded along with every single person that's trusted in Christ and believed the promises of God. I wonder, 
Are you able to verbalize your love and affection for the people around you? You know, certainly it might be harder for some particular personalities, but voicing our affections for one another, it's a characteristic of godly men and women, regardless of your personality type. Ask the Lord to give you courage and discernment and words for telling those around you that you love them, that you have great affection for them, that you will stand together with them before the Lord Jesus and you look forward to that day if they too are believers. You know, when we speak openly about our love for one another, we guard ourselves from division and disunity. And of course, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to us to share our love verbally with one another. Well, then Paul in these verses delivers that overarching command or exhortation. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. The life goal of every Christian from the moment they turn to Christ in repentance and faith until Christ returns or they die and are with him face to face can be described by the phrase, stand firm in the Lord. If you're a Christian, that's your mandate. That's your purpose. That's your life's theme. Standing firm in the Lord. Now, you know, Philippians only has four short chapters, but the term in him or in Christ or in the Lord is repeated 28 times. That's about once every four verses. It's a huge theme of Paul's. And only the book of Ephesians repeats those phrases even more. And Ephesians has six chapters, so I think Philippians wins in terms of repetition of in him, in Christ, in the Lord. Last week, I used the metaphor of a race, a road race, a running race to describe the Christian life. And Paul was using in those verses terms like press on. And he was saying he was straining forward for a prize. But standing firm is an appropriate metaphor as well. Standing firm imagines the Christian life as if it were a battle of waiting faithfully. Perhaps protected in a castle or a fortress with attacking armies all around. With great temptation to give up and surrender. But we're waiting for our Savior Jesus to return. He's made a promise and he's going to keep that promise. And so we wait patiently, faithfully, standing firm in the Lord. And the first way Paul instructs them to stand firm in the Lord is not general. It's specific. And it deals with a particular people caught up in a particular dispute. And we can generalize Paul's exhortation for ourselves by titling verses 2 and 3, Resolve Your Conflicts Together. That's the first section describing how to stand firm in the Lord. Resolve your conflicts together. So Paul immediately, immediately in verse 2, urges two prominent women in the Philippian church to resolve their conflict. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul is not shy about naming these two women publicly, is he? Their names from 2,000 years ago are immortalized in the Bible. In every single Bible, the best-selling book in the entire world, 
they are mentioned in the Bible as having a conflict with one another. Imagine that. Imagine if I said, Vipin and Rick, I encourage you, work out your problem, okay? Or I, I said, Neil and Hemant, look, I want you guys to work out the conflict that you've got going, okay? Imagine if I walked in here any morning and did that. Might be a little embarrassing. You sure would be motivated to get to work on that problem, wouldn't you? You know, uh, sometimes in our members' meetings, uh, there might be occasions when we mention people's names in association with trouble or unrepentant sin. Uh, this is what we would call church discipline. And although church discipline takes many forms and, and uh, in almost every case, our urgings of people to repent of their sin takes place in private for oftentimes days and weeks, even months before we might come to a place where we would mention their names in public, urging them to repent of their sin. Still, that might be the case. And we have evidence of that, of course, here. Paul was mentioning their names. And it's likely that Paul had this very issue on his mind from the very beginning of the letter, given how much he stresses humility and unity throughout the entire letter. I, had, I have in mind that he wanted to mention this specific case before he closed out the letter. Perhaps, of course, it wasn't the only conflict going on in the church, but somehow Paul selects this one to bring up. And as if it wasn't enough that Paul named them in this public letter, he essentially urges the whole church to help these women resolve that conflict. He calls on an unnamed true companion who some commentators think might have been the apostle, uh, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We don't know. But don't miss the point that although Paul names them publicly, which might have been somewhat embarrassing to them, he's actually appealing to their reputation as good gospel workers. He says these women have labored side by side with him in the gospel. And that phrase reminds us of chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul urges the Philippians to be of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And if you'll, if you'll remember when we were studying that passage in chapter 1, I, I told you that this was an image of Roman soldiers who had their shields locked together, pressed shoulder to shoulder for protection in battle. These women whom Paul mentions here publicly have been in gospel battle with him. He loves them. They're a treasure to him. They, they are some of the people that he's referring to as my joy and crown. He says their names are written in the book of life along with his. They have a shared future with him in Christ. And so on that basis, he's urging them to resolve their conflict and agree in the Lord. He's calling them up to something higher, to higher ground, gospel ground. Paul knows that peace and unity in the Philippian church is at stake. And their gospel witness is at stake as well. There is so much that we can learn from these verses, but I, I want to speak first 
with those of you who are not Christians who are here this morning. I want you to know that I'm praying for many of you by name, those of you who I know and who you've been coming perhaps for maybe some weeks, maybe even months. We hope that you always feel welcomed here. We welcome questions and exploration of the Bible and the Christian faith. This is the best place for that, actually, the church. You should know that the source of all conflict begins very early in the Bible's account of history. In the second chapter of the first book of the entire Bible, it describes a man and a woman, the first man and the first woman that God created, and they were perfect. And they were, they were in perfect and peaceful relationship with God. There was nothing wrong. No sin, no conflict. But by the very next chapter, the third chapter in the Bible, it describes how they disobeyed God and they violated that relationship and the purpose that God had created them for, which was to love him, to worship him, to find fulfillment in him and his purposes for all of creation. And the result was hostility between the two of them and God and hostility between each of them, the man and the woman. They blamed each other. They ran and they hid from God, in fact. And then by the very next chapter, the fourth chapter of the Bible, that man and woman had children, two boys, their very own children. One brother murders the other one. That's how quickly the conflicts escalate. And that is the source of every conflict ever since in the world. Every conflict. From simple marital arguments to the most horrific wars. I want to know, how do you deal with conflict? Do you sweep it under the rug? Or do you battle to win? You know what, you, you can read books. You can listen to psychology lectures. You can watch Dr. Phil for advice. But the biggest conflict that you must resolve is between you and God. And resolving that conflict will open the door to the res resolution of all other conflicts eventually. You and God are not all right. Something must be done about the break in the relationship that you have created. And now you, you hear us talk here at Covenant Hope Church about the gospel. That's the good news. It literally means good news. And this good news actually applies to this problem that you have. And God is the one who has done something about it, even when you couldn't do anything about it yourself. Because God is just, and because of his incredible love for you, he sent his son Jesus to live in a perfect, unbroken, conflict-free relationship with himself. No sin. There was no sin between Jesus and God. And yet he was crucified as a criminal. He was crucified and murdered as a lawbreaker. He did that to take your place, to absorb the just penalty for you creating conflict with God by your worship of other things and self rather than God. And you know what? Jesus is still alive. He was raised from the dead. And he's in a perfectly peaceful and loving relationship with the Father. 
And so you can leave conflict with God behind and enter into that peace with Christ and God the Father, the the peace that they have with one another by admitting your sin, believing in Christ, and trusting in his death on the cross on behalf of you. And when you do that, when you do that, you have peace with God. Peace with God that can never be taken away from you. And you can live with him and with those of us who are trusting in him now as well, forever and ever in peace. That's the good news that the Bible offers for anyone stuck in conflict with God. You can have it. It's a free gift from God, but you must turn to God and receive it. Well, how does that spell the end of our conflicts here? How does it spell the end of conflict here on earth? Well, we're just getting a taste of it now when you and I, as Christians in the church, reconcile with one another and work to live in peace and harmony. We're getting a taste of that future that we'll have with God the Father and with Jesus where there will be absolutely no conflict. It exists here in the church. And in addition to that, the gospel, being reconciled to God himself, teaches us to reconcile with one another. If we've been forgiven, as Nissen mentioned earlier, we should forgive as well. We've been shown grace, and so we should show grace. So the gospel teaches us to reconcile, and that's how it begins the process of eradicating conflict in us and eventually in the world. Brothers and sisters in the church, I want to speak to you as well from this passage. Our unity together in the Lord is of the utmost importance. Unresolved conflict between any of us is very, very serious. The book of James tells us that unresolved conflict, in fact, is demonic. It says in James 3, 14 and 15, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So how do we take steps to resolve our conflicts and outsmart Satan? Do you know that? When we resolve our conflicts with one another, we outsmart Satan and prevent him from getting a foothold. Let me outline quickly six keys to standing firm in the Lord by resolving our conflicts together. Number one. Recognize and repent of your pride. It is prideful to think that you are right all the time. You know, sometimes Joanne and I are joking with one another, and I'll remind her about that time years ago when I was wrong. You're not laughing. Yeah, yeah. I was wrong this week multiple times. And you know what? You're not right all the time. Humble yourselves, brothers and sisters. Humble yourselves. Remember that pride is your enemy. Pride doesn't do you any good. Pride kept you away from God. Humble yourselves. Recognize and repent of your pride. Number two, stop pressing your opinion. Rather, ask questions to understand. Understand the other person, that is. Genuine questions open the door to seeing the other person's point of view. Number three, ask for forgiveness for your sin. Don't just say, sorry, 
Don't just do a favor for the person as a way to make up. Don't just ignore it until things return to normal. Force those words through your mouth and across your lips. I apologize. Please forgive me. You might need to practice it. Recognize, recognize, brothers and sisters, this is not a cultural thing. People in all cultures are prideful. And no one, no one on the planet is comfortable asking for forgiveness from their heart. No one is comfortable with that. Americans, Indians, Filipinos, Nigerians, and every other nation is averse to asking for forgiveness. Number four, forgive no matter what. Forgive no matter what. Now, I'm not going to get into what the relationship should look like after differing types of sin or differing types of conflict. That is a bit complicated. But in every case, forgiveness must happen. We're a forgiven people, and so we must forgive. Number five, let others help you resolve your conflicts. Paul urged the rest of the church here in Philippi to help Euodia and Syntyche to resolve their conflict. Again, it's not natural and it's not a normal thing in any culture, but we are the church of Jesus Christ and we must let each other into one another's lives. Even the messy and the unpleasant parts. If you know fellow members who are in conflict, urge them to set it right. Pray with them to set aside their pride, to seek God's wisdom. Help them take the steps to reach resolution. And finally, number six, above all, remember the most important thing, the gospel. You know what? We, we can differ on any number of other things, secondary, kind of tertiary doctrines, politics, things like that. But our unity is based on unity in the Lord on the gospel. And when you're in the middle of the conflict, remember that all of your life is taking place in the shadow of the cross. It's hard to keep arguing and hold a grudge when we see the shadow of the cross cast on the ground beside us. Jesus died to resolve the conflict between us and God and between one another. You know, oftentimes the place where conflicts are hidden and they take root is in our families. Husbands and wives, are you resolving your conflicts promptly? Don't let Satan get a foothold in your marriage through unresolved conflict. Listen, if, if conflict in your marriage is going on and on and on and keeps reoccurring, I beg of you, please approach one of the elders. Ask for help. We want to help you work through those things. And it's possible. Just this past year, Joanne and I had a conflict. We were working through a very difficult family issue. And we approached one of the elder, other elders in Covenant Hope Church and asked he and his wife to help us understand one another and the situation and the issue we were dealing with. And God worked through that by his grace. Parents, are you teaching your children to resolve their conflicts based on an understanding of the gospel. Don't let them bicker. Don't let them row. And don't just shut it down by shouting at them. 
I know it's very tempting, especially when you're tired, they're tired, it's hot outside. <laughs> but take the time to walk them through it. That's the hard and crucial part of parenting. Well, after urging these women to agree in the Lord, Paul turns to another key in standing firm in the Lord. And that is what we see in verses 4 through 7. Pray joyfully about everything. Now, if you've been a Christian for any significant length of time, it's likely that you know these verses. Maybe you've memorized them. I suspect that some of you all have some of these verses, either four or five or six or seven, or maybe all of them, put on a post-it note and stuck on uh, a mirror in your home somewhere. It's fantastic. But Paul instructs them here to rejoice. Rejoice, he says. Again, rejoice. Now, we've already heard Paul tell the Philippians that he, he has no trouble repeating himself when the matter that he wants to teach is so important. He says it's safe for them to hear important truths and the instructions that he has for them. He mentions that back in chapter 3, verse 1. And joy is a major theme in the book of Philippians. And Paul is driving it home here once again. Rejoicing is not optional for Christians. We rejoice, not because of our immediate life circumstances, but because of our eternal life circumstances in Christ. You know, we've, we've been sought by God before he sought us. He's given us his righteousness so that we can live in peace with God. Our sins are forgiven and the judgment that others will one day suffer has already been passed on Jesus on our behalf. Glory awaits us when Christ returns. And so if we struggle for joy, then it's because we're struggling to see with spiritual eyes what our real circumstance is. And of course, we all struggle with that, don't we, from time to time, to see with those eyes, those spiritual eyes, to grasp our true situation in Christ. And so we have to remind one another, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord. Paul goes on then to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's urging them here to be gracious people. In fact, that word that's translated reasonableness in the ESV could also be translated gentle. Be a gentle people. And why? Because God is at hand. He's close by in the spirit. And Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, many commentators don't know exactly what Paul means by the fact that he says that God is at hand. Either he means God is at hand spatially because the Spirit is everywhere, or he means God is close at hand in time because he's coming back soon. But either way, either way, we should be motivated by the presence of the Lord and his imminent return to not be harsh people, but to be gentle reasonable people with one another. Being harsh and angry doesn't seem appropriate when we realize that the Lord God Almighty is present with us. He is here. And then Paul gives that wise command that we love to read and we have trouble carrying out. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Joyful, thankful, 
dependence on God in prayer is God's alternative to anxiety. Let me say that one more time. Joyful, thankful dependence on God in prayer is God's alternative to anxiety. So you wonder what trusting God looks like in real life? It looks like this kind of prayer. And look with me at the fruit of this kind of prayer there in verse 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard there is, is like a castle, like a fortress, a protected fort. And that's what prayer does. It builds a strong fort around our hearts and our minds. So what happens when we pray? You know, sometimes our circumstances don't change. I suspect you've experienced that if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time. You pray about something and your situation just doesn't change. So how does prayer bring us peace? Well, when we pray, we are recognizing that God is there. He's there with us. No matter what's happening that we can't control or not happening that we want to happen, God is with us. Prayer reminds us that God is in the room when the doctors and the nurses don't know what to do. Prayer assures us that God knows how little we have in our bank account when the paycheck is not there, but the bills are stacking up. Prayer comforts us in knowing that God is wherever that straying family member is right now. And he can do immeasurably more than our worry can accomplish. Prayer says God is sovereign and he listens to his children. Even if he decides that what we ask for is not a part of his plan. And think of prayer this way. Think of a time when you needed wisdom and you didn't know what to do and you knew someone, someone in your life, who if they were there, they would be able to help you. They would be able to tell you right away, you know what to do. And you think to yourself, if only so-and-so were there, I could ask them what to do in this situation. When you pray that someone is there, God, God is there in prayer. You know, praying for everything doesn't mean not taking action, of course. It doesn't mean we just sit in our prayer closets, so to speak, and pray about things. But it does make it far more probable that when we act, we will be acting with some guidance from the Lord. It factors God into all the situations that we'll encounter and in which we would be taking action. Did you notice that Paul says the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds? It's plural. And though we can always pray alone, that's something that God has given us the privilege of doing. We must pray together as well. And so you may have noticed that uh, we have a lot of prayer in our church gatherings here at Covenant Hope. Usually there's a, either a prayer of confession, like we had this morning. Neil prayed that for us. Sometimes we have a prayer of praise. We always have a prayer that's prayed by one of our elders, one of our pastors here. And that is largely to ask God for our own needs and the needs of others, both near and far. When the person is praying here in our service, he is leading you and I together in prayer. You should be praying with them. And you'll notice that we, we always lead by saying, we ask you for these things. We're, we're using that plural pronoun. 
because we're all praying together. One thing that you can do to agree with us when we're leading you in prayer is to say your own amen when the prayer when the prayer finishes. You know, it's a little bit odd, actually, that the person that's praying actually says the amen. They're the one praying and they say amen, which means so be it. Um, it the, the word amen is probably more appropriately spoken by those who are being led in prayer. In other words, I pray and you say, so be it. So I want to encourage you to say amen, be loud, be bold, be confident when you're praying in the service. Practice that. And it'll help you join into the prayer and participate corporately. Another thing that you can do praying together is join us on the first and third Fridays of every month. We gather at 5 p.m. till around 6.15 or so. And we sing a few songs and then we mostly pray. We pray for issues that touch our life as a whole church, whether it be evangelism, whether it be perhaps um, the issue of people losing jobs, or whether we, uh, we want to pray for the preaching of God's word in our church. We want to pray for the giving in our church to sustain the church. After some testimonies and reports from maybe some people in the congregation, we usually have 10 to 12 people, people in the congregation, just like the people who are here who lead us in brief prayers. And, and that gathering builds unity in our body as we unite our hearts in prayer to God. You know, if you're a new Christian, one of the first things that you need to learn how to do is pray. I want to encourage you, um, pull aside uh, a Christian who's more mature than you, someone who knows how to pray, and get them to teach you how to do that. You need to learn to speak to your Father in heaven. He wants to hear you speak to him. He loves you. It's one of the most important spiritual disciplines that you can grow in. And if you're a more mature Christian and you meet a new Christian, you should make sure that they know how to pray. Teach them how to pray. It's one of the best things you can do for them to help them grow. You know, fathers, one of the most significant things that you can do is to teach your children to pray. And to pray for them in their presence. Let them hear you bless them before the Lord. Pray for them over the phone if you're traveling. Husbands, pray for your wives. Pray for your wife. When you do that, you're doing what Christ did for his bride, the church. Even in John 17, he was praying for the church. When you pray for your wife, you're doing just that very thing. Well, these last two verses of this passage really cap off the entire book in a way. Most of what follows after verses 8 and 9 really are kind of end notes, as I mentioned earlier. They're very important end notes. So uh, I, I expect that uh, we'll get lots of rich material out of those uh, verses 10 through 20 next week. But in these particular verses, 8 and 9, Paul summarizes all that he's taught them about standing firm in the Lord. And he tells them to focus on godly thoughts and deeds. Focus on godly thoughts and deeds. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What a list. <laughs> True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. 
You know, one of the interesting things about this list of descriptors or adjectives is that most of these words, many of these words, this is the only place that Paul uses these words in, the, in all of his writings in the New Testament. And some of these words are actually uh, very Greek words. They're drawn from Greek philosophy. And so in some ways, Paul is not limiting his encouragement for the Philippians to focus on just things in the Bible. He's encouraging them to see common grace, what we would call common grace around them, which is the grace of God in creation. Um, That's not saving grace, but it's common grace. Or to see common grace in the lives even of people who are not Christians. They have grace from God too, not saving grace, but they have families. They experience joy. They have shelter and clothing and food. That's grace from God. And he encourages the Philippians to think about those things. As I've emphasized throughout the book of Philippians, as Paul has emphasized, that what we think about matters. We've been given a mind or the mindset of Christ. Paul told us that in chapter 2 of Philippians. And he wants the Philippians to think with that mindset of Christ. He wants their actions then to flow from their mindset. So how do we know what is really true, honorable, and lovely when we are at work in the world, when we move about in the world? How do we know that? Because the world is stained by sin and our judgment is clouded. And the world calls some things lovely and pure that are not lovely and pure to the Lord. Well, we know because of the benchmark of Jesus and the gospel and scripture. That's how we know what these adjectives really are in our world and in our lives. Our minds need to learn from him, from Jesus, what is true and honorable and lovely. We need a deep understanding of how to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives, to recognize what is just and pure and commendable. We need our lips to declare his word as excellent and praiseworthy so that we cultivate a taste and a hunger for the right things. You know, I used to look at this list and I used to think that I needed to just think about intangible adjectives. You know, just, I I used to tell myself, you know, kind of, okay, Brian, think truth. Okay, Brian, think purity. Think lovely. (laughs) It didn't work very well. Uh, and then as I studied this verse more and more, it, it, I came to realize that Paul didn't want them to think about necessarily just abstract ideas. Rather, he wanted them to think about concrete things, about actions, about attitudes that they could actually put into practice, particular truths, pure actions and words, commendable ways of interacting with one another things that they could do with their time that were worthy of praise. I wonder, what are the concrete actions, what are the attainable attitudes of mind that you're thinking about? What are you putting into your mind? What occupies your thoughts? Do you read trashy magazine articles? Or read a good book about growing in Christ? Have you watched a show on television and decided 
that's not really good for me to regularly put into my mind. And you stopped and you didn't go back to it. Is there a stubborn sin in your life? You know what? If there is, and if you're a human being with a beating heart, I suspect there's a stubborn sin in your life somewhere. There's a good chance that there is sinful and idolatrous thinking that's at the root of it. Ask the Lord to correct it. Ask the Lord to show you how you're thinking wrongly about life and about Him and about yourself. Ask Him to change your thinking so that it leads to purity in life. You know, this is one of the reasons that God gave you and I an imagination. He gave you and I an imagination to picture and to plan in our heads what kind of living we could do. Give your imagination to Christ. Let Him control it. Ask Him to instruct your imagination. Think on the things that He wants you to think on. But you know what? Our lives are not just about thinking, of course. <laughs> They're about doing, too, about acting. And how, we, and how do we know how to live other than what we read about directly in God's Word? Well, we listen to and watch the lives of godly people, godly people like Paul. And of course, that's exactly what he encourages them to do in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, I've asked you in a recent sermon, uh, just a, a, a chapter ago, who are you imitating? Because it was largely a theme in that particular chapter. Who are you imitating in your life? Let me tease that out a bit more. One, the people that you need to imitate most are near you. They're in your church. That's one of the purposes for the church, to gather God's people and gift them with models and shepherds, people to imitate. And so that it can be a good thing to, for example, learn from or listen to uh, preachers who are online, people like R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur or uh, Nancy Guthrie, for example. Uh, I benefit from them myself. I listen, listen to those teachings. Uh, and much of that is available online, and it's fantastic. But you know what? You and I cannot imitate R.C. Sproul. You and I cannot pattern our life after John MacArthur. You can't see their lives. You can only hear their voice, maybe see their face on the Internet. But you can do that here in Covenant Hope Church. How do you imitate? You listen to what kinds of things those people say. What kinds of things do they talk about? What are they interested in? What do they read? What do they listen to on the Internet? Watch how they interact with other people. Learn to interact with other people like they do. How are they discipling others? And do that. Are you making decisions in your life? Dating, marriage, career, money, anything. Listen, ask some of these people who you should be imitating. Ask to get together with them. Pick their brains. Get them to tell you their stories. 
Sure, you can learn from R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Nancy Guthrie, but I'd recommend you get to know Frank Sampson and Mark Donald and Joanna Matthew, Gigi and Philip Abraham, Sneha Sampson, Nissen Matthew, David and Chris Lawrence, and there's others in our congregation as well. You can see their lives. You can ask them questions. You can imitate them. God sent his son Jesus to die as a substitute in our place and to give us the same mindset, a humble, obedient attitude that puts the interests of others above our own, just like Jesus did. And that's the kind of life that will weather the storms of life. Pressing on toward the goal of Christ, standing firm in the Lord. It might bring images of races, castles under siege, waiting for our rescuer to come. And those are true. And they encourage us. They picture it rightly. But pressing on and standing firm really involves simple but profound thoughts and actions that God enables us to take on and do in our everyday lives. Things like resolving conflicts together or praying joyfully about everything or focusing on godly thoughts and deeds in all of our lives. That's what it means to press on. That's what it means to stand firm. Let's pray together.